Well, the scripture reading comes from the prophet Obadiah, found in what we call the Minor Prophets. Uh, That comes right after the book of Amos. If you'd like to find it and follow along, uh, if you'd like to just listen, that's fine as well. I'll read the entirety of this short uh, little book. Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a message has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock. In your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your borders. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Why not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. And on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall be turned on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau a stubble. And they shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. And those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. And they shall possess the land of Ephraim, and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem, Hurin, Sephirad, shall possess the cities of the Negev. 
Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. That's the reading of God's word. Well, Obadiah is the shortest book in the Hebrew Bible. It has only 291 uh, words in Hebrew, and yet just as little words can convey huge meanings, so also little books in the Bible can convey uh, huge meaning. So this little book of Obadiah and its message is of vital importance uh, for the people of God. A major theme of the book is judgment, obviously, as we read it. A judgment on Edom in particular. So who was this Edom? Uh, Edom functions as a kind of symbol for the universe of nations, all other nations. Edom's hatred of God's people has turned at this particular point in history towards the bestial. However, Edom's actions and behavior and future judgment as a model for other nations, show us that, indeed, the Lord will eventually judge the whole earth. Edom, that geographically elevated nation that the Israelites glanced across the Dead Sea towards, uh, risen up on the other side, and although their former kinsmen, because they were peopled by the descendants of Esau, they were now gloating victoriously over God's people. And Edom, that nation, had the so-called King's Highway run through it, which was a major freeway, if you will, in the ancient world for travel from south to north. At one time, it denied uh, God's people uh, passage, safe passage, uh, through uh, their territory. And so, according to Obadiah, now Balaam's oracle from Numbers will see its homecoming uh, here in Obadiah namely when it had been announced in Numbers 24:18, Edom shall be dispossessed. And therefore, the prophecy of Edom has real meaning for God's people today. Right now, those who stand fast for the authority of God's word and put their confidence in God's word. Why? Because we are witnessing a kind of canon crisis in our culture at this time. Of course, outside the church, we don't expect God's uh, people outside the church, nevertheless God's people outside the church, to submit to the canon of Scripture as the sole authority for guiding their faith and life. But now, it is a matter of fact that even in many quarters of the church, and among many professing Christians, not just in North America, but as a fact around the world, uh, question whether the scriptures are a sufficient norm for our moral faith and life. Many areas in our culture can be appealed to to illustrate this as political battles rage. The issues surrounding abortion have come front and center now. So-called reproductive rights over and against the rights of the unborn are part of everyday discourse now. Perhaps this is most clearly seen in the huge cultural shift that has taken uh, place in the sexual revolution of the last 60 years and with its um, concomitant perception of the self. Even ministers in the OPC have in our book of church order a suggested form for a wedding service uh, that the purpose for which God designed marriage is the following, and I quote, the enrichment of the lives 
of those who enter into this estate for the orderly propagation of the human race, for the generation of a holy seed, in other words, children, and for the avoidance of sexual immorality, all to the glory of our covenant Lord. In the eyes of much of the world, this is now viewed as antiquated at best, abusive and oppressive by those who hold to it, perhaps even ridiculous, perhaps even a sign of serious mental or moral deficiency on those on the part of those who hold to it. And so now the hatred of the Edomites can be compared by the growing hatred of Christians throughout the world as they express the truth of Scripture with conviction. This can be seen in many other current topics in our culture as well. But let's turn to the exposition of Obadiah. My goal for this is not only to support the claims I just made, uh, but also to instruct you on how to interpret the prophets more generally from this little book of prophecy. So if you pay attention to the principles I plan on teaching you this morning, it can give you uh, helpful reading strategies to derive edification from the entire uh, book of the prophets. We do not know the exact date of Obadiah. However, it is obvious there's some kind of relationship with Jeremiah 49, if you were to turn there, especially 49.7a, 14-16, 9-10, and then Obadiah verses 1-7, to which we read this morning. Whether Jeremiah came first or Obadiah came first, and that affects how we think about the influence of the one upon the other or vice versa, I do not know and I'm not sure that we uh, can even determine that. However, the word order of these phrases that are extremely similar are different, and therefore both books may have been relying on an older oracle against Edom. So with regards to the exact date of Obadiah, I'm trying to give you these introductory uh, matters. It'll be very simple this morning. Introduction, interpretation, and then inspiration. Okay, Um, We do not know. Uh, exactly the date. It doesn't really matter. The Talmud, for information, thought it was very early. Uh, Most scholars think that it is related to the events of Jerusalem's fall in 587. But in short, we just don't know. However, it should be sufficient for us to recognize, with regards to the date, that what God is concerned to communicate in this little short prophecy is that he indeed will deal with Israel's enemies and that they should rest assured that though the Edomites, who were their kinsmen, at least at one time, uh, cannot escape the hand of God and they will give an account of their cruelty against God's people in due time. Uh, The structure of the book, if you have it open, is very easy to follow. Uh, Verses 2 to 4 can be seen to be the first condemnation of Edom. It's foolishness and self-deluding reliance on its own terrain. Uh, The message is one of indictment. Yeah, you thought you were safe, high and exalted on your mountain, deeply protected in your lofty abodes. Not so. And then verse 5 through 7 uh, launch into a second condemnation of Edom. It's foolishness for demonstrating reliance on human allies. And for those alliances, they will actually, after performing the acrobatics of deception... Uh, Updike's turn, uh, they will be destroyed. One writer likens the deception to that of a friend who holds a knife underneath the sheets 
only to bring it out in surprise and kill uh, the victim, a lively metaphor to capture the literary artistry here. Verses 8 through 15 are about judgment over Edom, two days of destruction. Edom and then the nations other than Israel. And then verses 10 through 14 give the reasons why Edom will be destroyed. Verses 15 to 18 are about salvation for uh, Israel and Zion after the monarchy and judgment over Edom and the nations. And verses 19 to 21 actually demonstrate the concluding note of the book, which is all about Christ and his church. A particular image of and a divine promise for the ideal uh, future, which includes Christ and his church. This section obviously picks up language uh, from Judges, the book of Judges, and it extends the border of the restored promised land well beyond anything that David experienced during the monarchy or even during the restoration community. And therefore, we know that it has meaning uh, of greater import than just for the post-restoration Jews returning from Israel. In fact, in the Jewish tradition, Many saw it as messianic because the outlines of the border far exceed uh, what was originally uh, found in David's time. So that's all I have to say by way of introduction, now interpretation. Our interpretation of this prophecy should look at three references, a triple reference for the statements. First, to the immediate historical uh, event which corresponded to the return of the people, it seems, uh, from exile. Second, we should think about these statements in light of Christ. And I don't mean just the person of Christ. I mean all his work, the incarnation, the ascension, the apostolic era, even leading up to the second coming of Christ. And then third, we should find a reference to the whole course of history, even up to the various last day, when Christ will appear again. You see, we should always exegete the prophets. We should always interpret the prophets with rigorous attention paid to the text, using the best grammatical and historical uh, principles uh, that we can muster. This kind of exegesis, paying attention to the language, paying attention to the history, paying close attention to the text in its context, leads one to plumb the depths of the prophet's intentions. And nothing could be more important today with regards to reading texts. You see, what I'm saying is this is an ethical posture. In other words, one has a moral obligation to show respect uh, for the intentions insofar as they can be discerned of the original author. This is an ethical enterprise. It's a moral enterprise incumbent upon all of us. It's what we may call eloquent listening. Calvin, for example, would customarily remark after painstaking work in the text, on this text, his confident assertion that he had discerned the author's intention. Now, this may seem like a a small point, but pause and think of this. What I'm enjoining you to do from the pulpit is to try and discern the intentions of an author thousands of years ago in a vastly different culture 
We all recognize that even in the world today, if you're going to go to Japan, then you better get schooled on politeness theories and strategies and understand how the Japanese culture works. That's in this day and age. But what I'm encouraging you to do is to say, if you show respect and an ethical charity towards the text and trying to plumb the author's intentions at that time, from a thousand plus years ago, that's an amazing fact in and of itself that we can even do that. Calvin thought we could. After talking about the punishment of the Edomites in verses 7 to 8, he says, we now see the prophet's meaning. A little later, after commenting and exegeting on, shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, destroy the wise from Edom? He goes on to say, we now then perceive the import of the words, close quote. Or in verses 12 to 15, he says, we now understand the prophet's meaning. So obviously, perceiving the author's original intent, insofar as was possible, was extremely important to him, and so it should be to us as well. So having looked at language, next notice history, it's important to understand the original historical horizon, verse 13. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. So this is what the Germans call schadenfreude, taking malicious delight in somebody else's uh, uh, suffering or afflictions, if you will. And Calvin recognizes this. The, 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 churches, uh, the Church of the Old Testament's enemies were doing exactly that towards them looking down their long noses, even at their own brethren. Even with such attention to the original historical horizon, however, we should not be reductionistic. In other words, we should not limit our interpretation to that. And so here I would like to teach you about the prophetic idiom. This is the way that prophets often speak about future realities. The prophets who continually talk about the maintenance of, the arrangements of Israel, the tribes, the land, the temple, are actually often in that language not describing merely their own experience. They're actually speaking to future generations, including to us, about new covenant realities that were to come. And therefore, we should constantly be asking the question, are these things the matters described by the prophet that are contemporary to him, here are the enemies being the Edomites, what he's really talking about. Or is there some other level of meaning? Well, this prophetic idiom is that manner of expression by which the prophets of the Old Testament use the typological configuration of the language of their day to portray the messianic realities of the new covenant age in which we live now. And this is the nature of the prophetic idiom. And if you do not recognize it and pay attention to it, then you will misconstrue the intentions of the prophet, which are ultimately God's words to you. This is what Paul knew so well. Remember in Acts 26, there he is testifying before Festus and Agrippa. And he says, they say... Your, your learning has, is driving you mad, Paul. And he says, oh no, you know the, uh, you know the prophets, Agrippa. And then he responds, will you soon convert me to be a Christian then as well? And then he says, oh, would that it would so. 
You see, he's doing exactly uh, what we're talking about here, that the language of the prophets was freighted with meaning that had contemporary relevance even into the Roman age. The language of prophecy, the image the prophets use, the idiom they use in their description, is used to describe what Christ is going to do and what is going to happen to all of humanity. And this becomes very important for the descriptions of exile, scattering, gathering the tribes, and the return to the land and the form that the curses take. For although the prophets do not speak with omniscience of the future, they often don't even understand what they're saying as they're borne along by the Holy Spirit, they do often speak with the certainty of God's coming in Jesus Christ, the new covenant, and even the second advent of our Lord, without distinguishing all the parts separately. Um, And this is not always clear. It's not always conspicuous because there is still an integral unity about the various stages to which they speak. Notice what Calvin does to illustrate this point. Verse 17. On Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess all their possessions. About this, Calvin says, Here the prophet promises deliverance to the Jews, for other consolations would have been of no great moment had they, who were then perishing, no hope of being sometime restored to safety. Though the Edomites had attempted to intercept all outlets, as it had been before mentioned, yet God promises here that there would be an escape in Mount Zion. And he does not say on Mount Zion or from Mount Zion, but he says in the very mountain. What does this mean? That God would restore those who might seem then to be lost. And then Obadiah clearly promises that there would be a restoration with the church. See, for Calvin, there was an easy move, segue, to the fuller meaning of what Obadiah was saying. He cannot divorce the original historic horizon from its broader application in many periods of God's kingdom. And therefore, through analogies to their day and Calvin's day, and now even to our own day, we can make appropriate applications to uh, his own day and the fulfillment of Abrahamic promises even in our day. A little further on in verse 17, he says, And the house of Jacob shall again possess his own possessions. That is, whatever God has given as a heritage to the children of Abraham, he will restore to them when they return from exile. And yet, I think the real meaning of the prophet is that when the children of Israel should return from exile, God would restore to them their ancient country. And they might possess whatever had been promised to their father Abraham. He means then by their possessions, the whole land which came by lot into the possession of the chosen people as it had been promised to Abraham. In short, a correct exposition of the original historic horizon taken together with a comprehensive meaning for Calvin and us of the kingdom of God in all its fullness gives a fuller exposition of the text and a better understanding of the prophet's intention. And this we should apply to the entirety of Obadiah. For example, on the fulfillment of verse 18, the house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, the house of Esau stubble, they shall burn them, consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken, close quote. So when does 
Calvin see this fulfilled in the original horizon? He says, this was fulfilled when the Lord avenged the cruelty of Edom. Though the Jews were then in exile and could not move a finger, when they, they were without arms, yea, when they were miserable slaves, the Edomites were even then consumed by what fire? How is this burning kindled? Even then the house of Jacob and the house of Joseph were like a flame and a fire. The cause of this ruin, it is true, did not immediately appear to the Edomites. But we must here look to the purpose of God. This is why we pray for spiritual insight, the beginning of uh, delivering God's word. See, he sees things spiritually. He sees the proper figural interpretation, namely that it was much weightier than just that which was given to the Israelites at their time. Why did God with so much severity punish the Edomites? Because he intended by this example to show how much he loved his church, close quote. See, therefore, Calvin's switching back and forth in the original horizon of the Jewish community, demonstrating that it has present-day application for the church of the Old Testament. And no sooner has he done this than he's equally comfortable switching again to the future horizon, way off down the road in the corridors of time. Verse 19 and 20. Those of the Negev, that is in the south, shall possess Mount Esau. Those of the Shephelah, that is the hill country, shall possess the land of the Philistines out on the coast. They shall possess the land of Ephraim, the land of Samaria. So now he turns north. All points on the compass. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites. As far as Zarephath and the exiles of Jerusalem who were in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Now what's interesting here is Calvin immediately recognizes, appropriately so, as he's got his maps out, that this interpretation has a much broader application with regards to the kingdom of God that was um, then at any time was experienced by the monarchy, even under King David with all his expansion. He comments upon the measure of the borders, notes the kingdom described far outstrips anything they knew. And so Calvin notes this prophecy stretches beyond anything known previously or presently or within the confines of their own historical horizon. Now it is certain, he says, this prophecy has never been completed. We know that but a small portion of land was possessed by the Jews, What then are we to understand by this prophecy? It does unquestionably appear that the prophet speaks here of the kingdom of Christ. And we know that the church was then really restored and that the Jews not only recovered from their former state from which they had fallen, but that their kingdom was increased for how great became the splendor of the kingdom of the temple under Christ, which they had lost. Yea, God even enlarged the borders of Judea. Hence, he shows that they should not only be restored to their former condition, but that that kingdom would be increased in splendor and wealth when Christ should come. The import of the whole, in other words, the meaning of the whole is this. The Jews shall not only recover what they had lost, but what had hitherto uh, been given to them to possess, and all of this the Lord would bestow on them when Christ came. And then finally, verse 21 of Obadiah. Saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's, apostrophe S. 
In other words, belonging to the Lord. And this amply demonstrates what I've been saying up until this point. We should see this verse clearly as referring to Christ over and against the arguments of Jewish interpreters that do not want the referent to find its landing point in Christ. The reference here in verse 21, as many recognize with regards to the language of saviors, harkens back to picking up the history of judges, but it's not merely backwards-looking, it's also forwards-looking, taking a prospective reference to Christ himself. So having looked at introductory matters and then interpretive matters and hopefully some principles that you can apply as you're reading the prophets on your own so you might understand references they make not only as New Covenant Christians to their original historic horizon and not only to a restoration period but also to the fulfillment of Christ and his church and even at times up to the second advent of Christ which is yet to come. Now we look at inspiration now, often when we hear the word inspiration, I guess it's a little force, three eyes, you know, introduction, interpretation, inspiration. Uh, we think of divine inspiration, the scriptures of the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. And it's true, interestingly, that in this short book, the shortest book in the Bible, uh, four times the prophet does claim divine origin for his words. Verse 1, verse 4, verse 8, and verse 18. In other words, this is the word of the Lord that I'm giving you. However, I mean inspiration also in the sense that this little prophet should embolden and encourage the church, not only of the Old Testament, not only of the ancient New Testament church, but also even our times, as I've said. Because in short, God's enemies and those that hate the church will be judged in the end. So as I started to say in the introduction, giving you a few illustrations in our modern culture uh, why that is and why it has relevance to us, because the fact of the matter is, when you stand your ground on the scriptures, that will be construed, even if people are too polite to tell you so directly (laughs) outside the church, that will be construed as a hate crime, as morally deficient, given the culture and the fishbowl we live in today. But this little prophecy of Obadiah coheres exactly with what our Westminster Confession of Faith says about the Last Judgment. And I quote a very short snippet from chapter 33, section 2. The end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect. Semicolon. Perhaps one of the most elegant semicolons next to chapter 3 that there is in the confession. And of his justice in the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. People of God, when our Lord comes back on the authority of his word as minister of the gospel, I tell you, he will and he shall. For you, if you are in Christ and you are trusting for saving faith in none other but him, that is a vindication of your faith and a manifestation of his mercy. For those outside of Christ, the confession makes quite clear on the other side of the semicolon, who have not bowed the knee to him, that that will be a moment of justice 
and the courtroom metaphors are appropriate. And all common grace will be eclipsed. So in keeping with the exegetical principles mentioned previously, Calvin interprets the last phrase of verse 21, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's, apostrophe S, as applying to Christ, his church, and even to the last day. He remarks, by saying that the kingdom of Christ would be the Lord's, he means that it would really be divine and more illustrious than if he had employed the labor of men. God himself really rules in the person of Christ. And that is the legitimate mode of ruling in the church, that God alone should preside and hold alone the chief power. When does this occur for Calvin? Not merely in the Old Testament period, not even in the New Testament period, but here the prophet Obadiah is stretching all the way out to the end, the second advent of Christ. Hence it follows that when God does not appear as the only king, all things are in confusion without any order. Now God, in the prophet, is not called a king by way of an empty distinction, but then only is he regarded as a king in reality when all submit themselves to him, when they are ruled by his word. In short, when all creatures become silent in his presence, To God, then, belongs the kingdom. That's the end of any two-kingdom distinction when God comes back again. People of God, we are called to live in peaceful, neighborly love and compassion with those outside the church all around us. They, too, are called to live at peace with us. However, when this does not happen... We can experience the hate of the world, especially when the culture turns bestial and anti-Christian. And because of our convictions, we can be considered, even if not said so, stupid, belligerent, oppressive, and abusive. Nevertheless, be of good courage, for God will right all wrongs in the end. See, the people of the Old Covenant experienced this hatred, and now especially so too the people of the New Covenant. Nevertheless, God desires you to know his will. He gives you spoiler alerts at places in his scripture. He tells you the end. And why does he do that? To encourage you in your most holy faith to stay true to him and to persevere. That we may have the virtue of godly perseverance, which he works in us week by week, Lord's day by Lord's day. May he do so and may he accomplish this uh, for his glory and to the end of our betterment and preparation for the kingdom to come. Let us pray.